everyone, and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today, I am privileged to be joined by Ellie Beer, founder of United Hatzalah, about whom a brand new book, 90 Seconds, has been released by Art Scroll. Ellie, what a pleasure to have you here. A true honor. Thank you very much. It's your really name, exciting to your be Your name here. and reputation, reputation precede you. So many people know about what you've done. They may not know your life story, which is what this super book by Rabbi Nachman Seltzer is going to do. It's going to let people in on your background and your story. Right before this interview, though, you were mentioning something fascinating, that when you were coming now to America, from Eretz Yisrael, where you live, you had a real-life moment of meeting someone who's been impacted by your work. Just before we get started, I was so taken by this story. Tell, tell us a little about what happened. So Hashem sends me ways of motivating me to continue the work. And I was coming to the States now, just yesterday. And in the airport, I come to the counter of El Al. I give my luggage. And the woman says to me, she sees my name. She says, Hatzala, United Hatzala saved my husband's life a year ago. I said, what happened? She says, I live in a little kibbutz in the south of Israel, in the Negev, and my husband suffered a cardiac arrest. A young man, all of a sudden, dropped dead. I call for an ambulance, and before I turn around, 90 seconds later, a volunteer of United Atzala by the name of Gonen shows up with a defibrillator and starts performing CPR on my husband. She says, we're all crying, seeing our, our, my husband, our, the father our kid, of my children is, is lying there on the, on the floor with no, no heartbeat. And we're praying, and all of a sudden, a few, a few minutes after he started CPR and he shocked him with a defibrillator, my husband came back to life. And 50 minutes later, 5-0, 50 minutes later, an ambulance shows up. And if it wasn't for the United Hotel volunteer who showed up in 90 seconds, he wouldn't be alive. So I asked her, give me the name of the volunteer. I want to call him and thank him for what he did. We have six and a half thousand volunteers, but they need to hear a good word too. So I call him up. He was crying when I called him up. He couldn't believe it. He said, Ellie, I saved lives for many years. I'm a medic from the army. I was a soldier in the army as a medic. And now I'm volunteering in Atella, but I was traumatized. 25 years ago, exact to the date, February 4th, 1997, I was a medic in the Army, and the worst accident happened. Two helicopters crashed up in the north, next to Kriachmona, and 75 young soldiers perished. I couldn't save anyone. I was there running from one soldier to the other, and I couldn't save anyone. I was crying for months. I was traumatized. And I decided to start volunteering and saving lives. And I love doing it every day in Atzala. In United Atzala, I could do it, even in the Negev. But this man that I saved, that you're calling me for, this is a neighbor of mine, not far from me. I got to him within less than 90 seconds, which is your vision. And when I saved him, I realized it was the yard site of the 75 soldiers, 25 oh. years, for the, for the Asana Masukim, the tragedy of the helicopters. Mm. And when I, saw, when I heard this story, I came here and I said, Hashem gives me these stories all my whole life to just keep me going, to fill up my battery. Right. And I love sharing these stories to motivate other people, to inspire other people. Well, you are an inspiration in the sense that you, as, as really one person, you had a vision, 
you had a dream, you also had the determination to bring that dream to fruition, and I, we, we don't know how many lives your efforts have sold, but it's, have, have saved, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's an in, inestimable number, and uh, you're, you're, you know, you have tremendous chosem to your credit for doing so. But let, let's go back to Ellie Beer as a youngster. Where did you grow up? Who impacted you before you came to that important juncture in your life? Well, I grew up in Yerushalayim. I was born to an American family. That's how I speak English. Mm. And my parents were Americans. My father was Rabbi Gavriel Beer. My mother, Chaya Beer. And I had six brothers and sisters. Um, when I was six, almost six years old, I was a young boy, uh, I experienced one of the worst experiences anyone could experience, even an older person, a terrorist attack on a bus in Beit Vagan, where I grew up, not, not far from Kol Torah Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. A bus that was coming into the neighborhood on a Friday afternoon, the number 12 bus, blew up on the bus stop. Six people were murdered, and over 50 people were injured. And I was looking at the people on the floor that were laying there and screaming for help, and I was just a little boy. I couldn't do anything. And it impacted me for many years. I was thinking about whatever happened to that old man on the floor. Did he survive? What happened to him? He was screaming for help. I couldn't help him. And I was always thinking, if I could have helped him, maybe I would have saved him. And I decided one day I'm going to save people's lives. Wow. That's quite a young age for, for a child to process that, that, those types of images, right? I mean, Well, I grew up near Yad Vashem. Mm-hmm. And I used to go to Yad Vashem frequently. I used to spend time there looking at stories, reading stories and looking at pictures of Holocaust survivors and, and seeing what the Nazis did to the Jewish people. And I always said, if I was alive, I would help people. Mm-hmm. And I heard my father tell me stories when he was a young boy growing up in the Lower East Side. He would raise money uh, in Vad Hatzalah then. Oh, wow. As a post-war. 10-year-old boy. Post-war. post-war. 1938, my father was raising money uh-huh. to save Jewish souls from the Nazis. And I said, if I was alive in that time, what would I do? And then when I was, during that time growing up, that period, Growing up and remembering that incident with the 12, 12 bus blowing up, I always said one day, maybe I could save people. It was always my dream to save one life. Mm-hmm. Talking about how many lives did I save, I don't know, but I know I saved at least one life. And that was always my dream. And then um, that opportunity came when I was 15. And what, what happened at that point that you were able to finally bring your, your dream? I mean, you're only 15 years old, 16 years old. What happened at that point that you were able to, to actually put it into action? So, you know, I wasn't the best student in Cheder. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know what, maybe ADD, ADHD, and other things, uh, dyslexia a little. And uh, I was always looking for things to do. And I saw a sign on a tree. It was like these signs that you have to pull out the piece of, number, the number on the bottom, that if you want to become an EMT, they have a course for yeshiva boys. During the summer, uh, the city of Jerusalem did it, and I, and I registered right away. I said, this is my opportunity. Now I'm going to go volunteer as an, in an ambulance 
to save lives. Well, what did your parents think about that at that point, for you to do that? Actually, my parents were very happy. My father was thrilled when I told him I just found a way of, I could, my father knew how much I wanted to save people. That's mm -hmm. all I cared about. I mean, if you would give me any other thing, like you say, oh, you go to space. You want to go to space? No, I don't want to go to space. I want to save a person. I was thinking always about what if I would have done something when I was a boy. I said, maybe now I could save someone. And I went to learn. It was like a month during the whole Benazmanim. I was learning. And the end of the Benazmanim, I got my certificate. I, this is my first certificate ever. Wow. I don't think I ever got a certificate in school. That's cool, right? <laughs> I was going to say, your story really is encouraging. Not every kid does well in school. We know that. Not every child who makes it through the school system is an A-plus student. I forgot what the, what the saying is, you know, be nice to your BNC students because they're the ones who are going to come back to support your institutions later on. There's some kind of saying like that. Or save you. Yeah, or uh, that's exactly the point. <laughs> Someone like you who may not have done well academically, but you had a fire burning inside. You really did. And you knew you were going to make a difference. You just weren't sure how. That's true. And then when I finished the grad when I graduated and I became officially an EMT, uh, I was sure the next day I'm going to save people's lives. It was no question in my mind. And I was very disappointed. I was so disappointed when I joined an ambulance and I realized how it's not so easy to save people. Mm -hmm. And I realized that although people think an ambulance saves lives, volunteering for a year and a half in the back of an ambulance, I realized it's almost impossible. You help many people. Mm -hmm. you, you, people who are waiting for you and are breathing on their own, they could wait and you get there and you help save them, but you're not really saving them. You're, you're, you're helping them get to the hospital. Right. People who are not breathing, by the time you get there, they're brain damaged and you can't save them. And if you do save them, they die a few days later. I said, what's going on? I'm in an ambulance. I'm doing CPR like we're supposed to. We're doing resuscitation. We're getting to really bad car accidents where people are laying there. We're getting there with an ambulance, and we're not getting them back to life. Mm -hmm. And this happened over and over. People were calling, saying, we spoke. We, when we got there, they were screaming at us. We just spoke to him. He was talking to us. What took you so long? But it wasn't our fault. We were fighting traffic, the distance. And people don't realize it takes you two or three minutes to get into the ambulance. Because mm. if it's late at night, so the, the ambulance crew are sleeping because they are union. Sure. So you have to get up, catch rest, run to the vehicle till they get to the scene. And that's probably without traffic because they're not usually that's, that's not even an issue. So well, 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 how, did, how did you end up in the realm of Ikhra Atzala. How, how did that happen? Well, we didn't have any Atzala in Israel then. Atzala operated in New York. Right. Herschel Weber started that. Um, what, did, what was in existence at that time in Israel? They, they had, had an ambulance service? They had an ambulance service. Public or private? It was really a private, non-governmental organization, not government. Mm -hmm. um, only one, Magen David Adom then, Today they have a lot, over 100 ambulance companies. Right. But then it was like one ambulance that had maybe nine or 10 ambulances on call in Yerushalayim. 
So if one ambulance was, all the ambulances were busy, they would call an ambulance from outside of Yerushalayim, maybe Beit Shemesh or another city nearby, uh, and it would take time. But even those ambulances in the city, they were all stationed in one place. Mm -hmm. So imagine to yourself, before Uber, you would call a car service to go to the airport, and they would say, okay, you'll be there, the taxi will be there in 25, 30 minutes, if you're lucky. Mm. Same thing. Because ambulances would have to come from one station, and we would sit in the ambulance station waiting for the emergency calls. And when we got their call, I remember as a 15-year-old boy, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, we got a call in Gilo, which is on the other side of town, right, next to Cave uh, Rachel. And we get a call. A lady called for her husband not breathing. And it was a freezing night. The, the, the driver, the ambulance driver, who was a worker, we were volunteers, was sleeping, so we had to wake him up, he had to put his shoes on, he had to go to the bathroom, and we, he was rushing, of course, but he got to the ambulance, he forgot something in the, in the room. He forgot a cigarette, and I had to go get a cigarette, because how could he operate, you know? And I was thinking, I was a kid, I went crazy, how could this thing happen? But I, that's, that was like a normal routine. Uh -huh. I run, I get it, it took us two or three minutes to get out of the station. We get on the road, it takes 15, 20 minutes to get there. By the time we got there, this man wasn't breathing. We started CPR, and after 40 minutes of work, another ambulance shows up with a doctor, and he says, this man is not alive anymore. Hmm. And this happened over and over, and a year and a half after I started volunteering, I had a log on. I used to write down every emergency, what time we received it, and what time we arrived. And I realized that average response time was 17 minutes. Wow. Wow. But they, you couldn't complain. That was one service. That's what happens in every country when you have one service of anything. Mm -hmm. So I was in my back of my mind, I'm thinking, how can we make things better? And I always said, if someone is not breathing, if a kid is not breathing, why don't they stop the radio broadcast? They only had one station on the radio in Israel then. Mm -hmm. Why don't they stop the station broadcasting music or the news and say, a little boy by the name of Shlomo Zalman is not breathing now. He lives on in this, in this neighborhood. In this neighborhood. Could someone run to save him because an ambulance is coming from the other side of town? I was thinking about it, uh -huh. but I knew that it's not going to happen. And then we had an incident that changed my life. It was a, it was a Thursday. And we, we were in Haratzofi, Mount Scopus, which is next to Ramatishko. And we got a call while we were cleaning up the ambulances after the ambulance after another incident. And on the radio, on the walkie-talkie, the dispatcher of Magen Devadom says to the driver, "Are you available to take a call? It's like a code red, like a code one, a, a child not breathing." And he said. I'm, I'll jump. Yeah, we ran into the ambulance. He started zooming to Baifagan, which is the other side of town. Right. Fighting traffic. They didn't have the Begin Road. It was very difficult. It took us 21 minutes to get there. A child, seven years old, choked on a hot dog. His mother was trying to save him, but she couldn't do anything. Another neighbor came and spilled a whole bucket of water on him. So we started doing CPR on a freezing, cold, wet child. The mother was hysterical. She, was, she said, why did it take you two hours to come? You murdered my son. And we didn't murder his son. We were just trying to get there fast. But we were the only ambulance available in the city. 
And after about one or two minutes, a doctor who was nearby saw the ambulance that came. He ran to help. And he came up the steps. It was top floor of a building. And he said, I'm a doctor, ER doctor. And he started performing CPR with us for almost 45 minutes. And after that, he said, there's nothing else we could do. Just bring a sheet to cover him. And this was the worst feeling in my life. I never felt so bad. In that moment, I realized that a doctor was a block away, but that whole time, he didn't know this kid is suffocating to death. And how do you know? If someone would have let the doctor know earlier, he would have saved him for sure. People are not supposed to die from choking. There was easy techniques you could save them. Mm. The Heimlich. But people have to know about it. And the problem was, and still is, ambulances keep their secrets from others. Very much like Uber would never share with Lyft that someone needs a ride and they don't have a car available. Right, right. And that's how it works with ambulances. They keep the information inside instead of sharing it with everyone. Like screaming for help. Like an ambulance system should scream, I'm on the way. I want to transport a live person. Please respond. You're so, saying it's like, it's like any other field of endeavor with his competition and everyone's kind of possesses, possessive of their knowledge and, and, and you would think in terms of saving lives that there would be more of a community I thought to so. Save, to save lives. And I realized after being a year and a half in the back of an ambulance that it doesn't happen. Mm. Ambulances, when they get a call, it's not only in Israel, it's everywhere. In Iceland, when an ambulance gets a call, they send an ambulance to the person. They're not going to share with everyone living around, respond to an emergency. So I said, I want to start a service that volunteers will respond to calls before ambulances arrive. Not to replace the ambulances, God forbid, they need ambulances, but to fill in the gap between the emergency happening until the ambulance arrives, which could take 17 minutes. And my goal was to get there in 90 seconds. I said 90 seconds is the time you could get to someone and not only save their life, but prevent brain damage and organ damages. And I went to the, it was obvious, I went to my friends and they all said, we're in, let's do it. But the problem is, where do we get the information about a child choking? Who would share the calls with us? So I decided, since I was a volunteer at Magen David Adom, I will go to the head of the station in Jerusalem. His name is Chaim Bigolik. He was a wonderful man, but quite a tough Israeli person. He was, you know, it's, it's controlled more or less by a union and by a organization. It's a hundred-year-old organization. I went over to him and I told him my idea and he didn't like it. And I tried convincing him. I found myself very fast outside. He of didn't him. like it because he felt threatened? He didn't feel threatened. He, fo- he thought it was a joke. He said it doesn't work like, th- it doesn't work like that anywhere. Go to uh-huh. France. It works like that in France. Not in France. Not in England. Not in Scotland. It's not going to work in Israel either. When someone calls for help, he must get someone with a uniform, with with, you know, with the, with the you know, uh, organized ambulance. It can't just have random people running out to emergencies. Who's going to supervise insurance? You know, you have many reasons why not to do anything. And I was like, I had a dream to save someone. I was sure he's going to love the idea. And he, he said, it's the stupidest idea. 
And he said, you're wasting your time. I will never forget, he said to me, you look like you need something to do. Don't do it here. You'll see in the book, I, I described that whole situation. Sure, sure. But it wasn't, he was a good man. He was really a good man. But you didn't take no for an answer, even I, though you were a young kid. I never you... take no for an answer. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're a master fundraiser also, which you uh, do for United Atzala. We'll see. Because at the end of the day, your Ellie Beer is a person who looks at the end goal. You're a person who looks at the end goal. You want to get there. And you're going to get there one way or another. If it wasn't with his help, you were going to get there with someone else's help. Exactly. I, I, I understood he's not going to want to cooperate with me. He's not going to want to share information. All I wanted is, if you get an address in Ramatish Kol, in Baifagan, in Sanhedrin, wherever it is, if you get an emergency of someone in trouble, just send us a beeper, you know, these pagers. Mm -hmm. This is the address. Go respond. If you get there, you get there. You don't get there, you don't get there. It's not an obligation. We'll get the volunteers to, to get excited about it. We'll get them equipment. Just give us the emergency knowledge. And it didn't happen. So I decided, you know what? I don't need your help. I can manage on my own. And he was smiling. And I knew him from just volunteering there, but he was he didn't mean bad. I, I actually think about a lot about him. He's not alive anymore, Chaim. He was a good person. Late, years later, he became very close. We became close friends. But I went, I said, I'll manage without you. And I went ahead and I decided what's the best innovation we ever invented in Israel. Israel invented many things, but the number one invention we invented was a thing called chutzpah. That was us. That was, maybe it's American also, a Jewish American. <laughs> sure. um, and I went ahead and I, uh, I got my friends to adopt the idea. I had some money left from my bar mitzvah. I was actually traveling to the States, uh, and I went to a radio shack in Brooklyn. And I come in there, it was like, this is the place I love the most, the, all these walkie-talkies, scanners, right. and, and I picked the best two scanners, and I bought it, $700 it cost, and uh, I had to sneak it into Israel, because it, would, it wasn't allowed. No, it's not allowed, they wouldn't let it through customs? No, they would catch it, take it away. And that's how I started. I had an underground operation center. So you recruited some people to volunteer. And how were you responding? I mean, the book describes it, but how do you, at that point, responding to calls? What, what, was, the, what was the process? So the process is we had volunteers who were, we had two walkie-talkies, so we would share the walkie-talkies between ourselves. Okay, you'll be on Sunday, It'll be on Monday listening into Magin Davidom's Operation uh, uh, Radio. And you would hear an ambulance dispatch to Yafo number 76. Someone's having a stroke. And we would right away send a pager. They had these walkie pagers that you would actually call a number. You would dial in a number and say an address. And the volunteers would hear it. They wouldn't even know what it is for. They would just run mm -hmm. and get there. Mostly... Um, mostly, you know, volunteers who came from the firm communities were all from volunteers, and they would run right away, and some of them were using bicycles, cars, and undercover, more or less, and start treating people. And two days after I started becoming, you know, involved with this, uh, everyone got hooked up to it. We had 15 volunteers, very soon 50, 20, but 
The first emergency that I responded to was a man who was hit by a car right next to my father's bookshop, his farm shop. Um, my father sold farm since he moved to Israel. He had a bookshop in, in Bayit Vagan, right? In Bayit Vagan. Yeah. He sold American books. Uh, he, spoke, he sold English books mostly, and uh, he, spoke, he sold Sforum. And I, underground, I would sit there and listen in, in my father's basement, and I hear a call of a man hit by a car. And it was Hapizga 45, I was in Hapizga 50. And I ran holding the walkie-talkie, no medical supplies on me, I had zero equipment, but I knew what to do. And like, like Superman, I run <laughs> there, and people were surrounding this person on the floor, and I saw he was injured all over, but he was bleeding from his neck. And I told everyone, Ani Chovesh, I am an EMT. And they all moved aside. And I, I kneed down, and I, I said, anyone have a bandage here to stop his bleeding? No one had anything. I didn't have anything. So I took my yarmulke off my head, and I pushed it in. Wow into the wound. She just put pressure in and to stop his bleeding. Just like this. Holding it in as much as I could. And slowly, slowly he stopped bleeding. He stopped bleeding. He was still bleeding on his own, breathing on his own. But the, eventually the ambulance arrived and they put a bandage on it with my yarmulke on it and they took him to the hospital and I wasn't sure if he'll survive. But two days later, I get a phone call. Someone says, are you Ellie Beer? I said, yes, this was in my house. He says, my father was hit by a car, and I heard you were the one who came to save him. He woke up this morning in Hadassah Hospital. And he would love to thank you for saving his life. So I started crying. This was like winning the lottery. This was the best feeling in the world, saving a person. It was your, your dream. It was my dream. After one and a half years volunteering in the back of the ambulance, I finally save someone on the street. So I, I went to Hadassah Hospital, and he gave me this greatest hug I ever got in my life. Old man, he was around 70. For me, he was very old. Today, it's like I'm getting close to it soon. But uh, <laughs> he was uh, uh, an older guy, very pale, very skinny, and he was injured all over, and he gave me a hug. It was the best feeling in the world. And then he said, Thank you for saving me. And when he took his hands off me, I saw he had a, he had a tattoo here with a few letters and numbers. Wow. A blue tattoo. I will never forget seeing that tattoo for so close. And I realized I just saved a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. And how easy it was. And then the doctor comes into the room and he says, are you the boy who say, uh, stopped his bleeding? I said, yes. I was very proud of myself. So he said, I have two things to tell you. First of all, he was on Coumadine, which is a blood thinner, and if you didn't stop his bleeding, he would have been dead in two minutes. So you did the right thing. But he says, if you want to be a hero, buy bandages. Don't put yarmulkes on people's wounds. wounds. <laughs> Use that for putting it on your head for... Uh, <laughs> And I decided maybe I should buy bandages. We only had radios. Right. And that's how it started. Now later on, jumping ahead in the story, you made another innovation. Besides for the idea of creating this volunteer service, which ultimately grew and expanded, and cre you created 
your own entity, right? Eventually, it, you, you took on a name, well, United Atzala, and you had to have that registered with the authorities, which not an easy process. There were a lot of naysayers, a lot of people who didn't necessarily like what you were doing, right? People felt threatened and things like that, but ultimately you created this entity. But the innovation that I'm referring to, which is somewhat related to the name of the book, is the Ambucycle. That was really a, a game changer, was it not? Definitely. I mean, one of the, the, the game changer was the idea, but the tool to get to the game change was the Ambucycles. And it was so obvious for me, I would see as a volunteer in the back of an ambulance, I would see motorcycles in Yerushalayim passing us from the right and left, delivering pizza. Uri's Pizza had a motorcycle. They would deliver motorcycle, deliver pizza. The falafel guy would deliver falafel. We would be stuck in the traffic to go save a child who's in, suffocating, but the pizza guys would get there right away in between the cars. Sometimes they would go on the sidewalk just to get there fast. And I said to myself, you know what? If I ever choke, I'm calling for a pizza. They will get there much quicker, and the chances of them saving me much higher than an ambulance saving me. And then when this thing started, I told my friends, I said, look, we're going to get motorcycles. We're going to get like a pizza box, put all the medical equipment an ambulance has, and we're going to get there much faster. Nothing's going to stop us. Not only we're going to get there fast, we could park right in the entrance to the location. Because when you get there with an ambulance sometimes or a car, you see cars in Borough Park, in Brooklyn, everywhere. They park everywhere, triple park. You don't have park. You don't, even when an ambulance comes, he doesn't have park. And if, when an ambulance comes, sometimes seven cars are before the ambulance can go through. Blocked, right. So you can't block the whole road. So having an ambicycle, not only you can get there quick, you have the medical equipment available in the right place. And that's the idea. So the volunteers of, of, of Hatzalah then said to me, Ellie, who's going to authorize this? We need to go to the government. We need to go get permissions, you know, all this, all the, all A lot the red of bureaucracy. Tape, bureaucracy. Yeah. So I was six, I was maybe 18 then, 17, 18. I was a young, young boy. I said, listen, I'm going to give the authorization because if we go to the government and ask for permission, I'll be 90 years old before we get the permission. <laughs> I said, in Israel, you first do and then ask for forgiveness. You don't ask for permission before you do anything good. And using the chutzpah idea again, we went ahead and we equipped a motorcycle, made it officially looking. You can see the picture here. And the police didn't even imagine it has no license or anything. Mm -hmm. Now it's, of course, super organized, and we did a revolution here. This is a disruptive organization. We came, no one asked us to do this. No, the government didn't ask us to do this. The ambulances definitely didn't ask us to do this. But it led to millions of people who got help. But not only did you get flat, there were people who told you that not only aren't you helping, but you're actually putting people in greater danger. Right? Tell people who told you that by being this destructive revolutionary force. And I think it's an important lesson for all of us to hear from you. You know, people have ideas, people have innovations, people want to make a difference. And so, so often they get just crushed by the naysayers, by the, by the criticism. 
somehow you were able to navigate that. And, and in, like you said, in Israel, it's not an easy place to, to come up with a new idea and implement it. Israel is one of the hardest places to implement. Um, monopolies want to keep their power. Organizations who are alone don't want anyone else to threaten their mamlacha, their, you know, their kingdom. So when we started, we had a problem. The motorcycles were brilliant. We call them ambicycles. Right. It was so obvious. It wasn't even a, it wasn't like creating a, like technology that are like, you know, these, today's technology, you say, how did they do this? This was such a simple so idea. So basic. So basic. It wasn't existing. And when I got the first letter from people who were trying to stop us, saying, this is going to kill people, you better stop. We're going to go to the police against you. We're going to stop you. We're going to do everything possible. And I got the heads of the unions of Magendo Dom telling me, this is not, we're not going to allow this. This is, I'm talking about almost 30 years ago. Right. People were telling me, we're going to fight against you and everything. When I realized how people are getting threatened by it, I realized this is the right thing to do. Mm. And I said, nothing's going to intimidate us. We're going to do this. We're going to continue doing this. And we're going to get more and more of these ambicycles. I went around. You, you, you could read the book on how I started raising money for it. Sure, sure. I'm going to get to the fundraising in yeah. a second. But it, it was, is interesting it was, that in New and York... And by the way, yeah. that wasn't the only, only thing. When I brought the first defibrillator to Israel, automatic defibrillator. No one had ambulances, regular ambulances didn't have defibrillators, only the intensive care right. had a big monitor defibrillator. I brought it in, I snuck it into Israel through the customs. And I didn't stop. I didn't want to show anyone, I just brought it in. And I get a, I get a call from the head of the health ministry. He says, we're not going to authorize you. Who let you bring it into Israel? I heard you're having a defibrillator. Who, it could burn someone, it could this. I went to meet him, it was a nice guy, his name is Yaakov Bari. He's, now he's a good friend of mine. And he said, I want to see this thing. I want to see. And I, he said, you need to get this permission, that permission. Now. 35 different organizations should authorize this. I said, guess what? It's in the back of our motorcycles. It's going to save lives. And if you want to authorize it, I'll give you a picture of it. And he could do the old uh, red tape and everything. And he became a big chassid of the organization. Because but a, a lot of your naysayers ultimately came around to become your biggest fans. Because yeah. I think they, they recognized that you, had, you really didn't have any, agen any personal agenda. You wanted to save lives. You wanted to make the process smoother. I, I think and I got other people better. Thinking yeah. about right. what we did in United Atzala not only enabled us to save lives, it brought other organizations to start looking at us and saying, we can't be staying behind. Many, many years later, Others started copying the model of the motorcycles, right, the right. ambicycles. I was wondering, reading the book, why, let's say, in New York, you don't really see the ambicycle. And you would think that in New York, especially with the congestion and the traffic, you would think it would, it would be a, a, a good innovation. But well, after the 92nd article book, <laughs> they're going to start having motorcycles <laughs> in New York, too. They'll bring you down for a presentation. Now, you mentioned the fundraising before, which a, a lot of the book discusses your chutzpah, really, when it comes to fundraising. The whole uh, chapter with Leonardo Farkash, how he was so generous to you, and then in Ellie Beer fashion, you just pushed the envelope a little too far and asked him for even more money, which is what you do. You know, when you came up with this idea, you want to save lives, you're going to create a, an organization, that's one thing. Fundraising is a whole different animal. Not everyone who's good at one thing 
is necessarily good at another. Someone who's good at orchestrating and, 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 and you have this tremendous motivation to save lives, it's very altruistic, it's an amazing thing. But asking people to give you money is a whole different thing. When, when you entered that realm, how did you, how did you learn how to do that? Because you're very good at it. First of all, I think I'm doing terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could do a lot more. Okay. I could lower it down to 60 seconds if I had more money. Because I really think my goal of 90 seconds is, a, is too long. If we train more volunteers, if we have more ambicycles, if we have, instead of six and a half thousand volunteers, we have 13,000 volunteers. We double that. That means training thousands of more people, buying more defibrillators, response time will go down, and more Jews, more people, more, more citizens of Israel will be saved. So I really think I'm doing a bad job. I have to learn more how to raise money and work harder. I put only 20 hours a day. I should work harder. <laughs> So people said, you're such a great fundraiser. I said, this is the greatest cause in the world. It should be easier for me. It's not easy. I travel and I have a lot of aggravations, a lot of heartfelt. I, I go to people, ask them for money, and I get no's once in a while. Give it's people an idea. Well, what's, what's your annual budget now? Well, we started with $1,000 a year. That's how we started, with two radios and a few bags of medical equipment. It's grown a little since then. It's grown a little. Look, I'll tell you, we treat 800,000 people every day, every year. 800,000 people. And that's besides our international operations going to Ukraine and going oh, into disasters, Turkey, global disasters. disasters. And other programs that we do with Holocaust survivors and many. We have an incredible big organization that treats 800,000 people a year. And our budget is only $50 million mm -hmm. for that, meaning... Just think about it. it and all cost. that has to be fundraised, or do you get any money from the government? We don't get any money from the government. This not is a, a non-governmental non oh. organization run by people that are from all backs of life in, in Eretz Yisrael. And we get a little money here and there. I always tell the government, I had meetings with every prime minister and every minister, and the first thing they said, how could you help me? How could I help you? The minister like Lapid, it's not so popular in, in Bar Park. <laughs> Lapid said to me, I want to help you. How can I help you? I said, listen, Yair, do me a favor. I don't need your help. Just don't bother me. That's the biggest help they could do. When we want to develop new ideas, don't make it hard for us. Money from the government is important, and we're slowly getting more now. The new government is much easier to work with uh, in terms of finances. But, but that's not we, we don't depend on the government because unfortunately, Israel does not have a government for most, most of the time. The last three years, we didn't have sure. a government. So if we want to go ahead and create United Atzala on a sustainable way, we need to depend on Am Yisrael. So I need to go to thousands and thousands of people to get and get them to support United Atzala. And that's the idea of United Atzala, that we don't depend on donations. We don't depend on government. We depend on volunteers, and we depend on support from people. So we're talking about fundraising. I encourage everyone to read the chapter on Leonardo when you ended up in Europe and he wanted to give that gentleman 250 million euro. <laughs> the guy didn't want to accept it. That chapter is off the charts. But you have great fundraising stories. Tell me one that just stands out in your mind. Well, 
if you want to learn the tricks about fundraising, you could learn read the book, but it's not really fundraising is really something that you have to have love to what you're doing. If I didn't love United Atella so much, I would probably not be able to raise one dollar. If you ask me to fundraise for anything, I probably don't know how to do it. And you need to love what you're doing. If people don't connect to your love and your passion you have for the for the organization, for the cause, you're probably not going to do well. Right. And I think this is really the essence of everything. I met people and told them the needs and my experience being involved in saving people's lives and just said to them straight into the eyes, I need you to support this. Could you donate $1,000? Could you donate 10000 Could you donate a million? And that's it. And then be quiet. Wait for them for a response. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to see that people want to support. I didn't know this. I never learned fundraising. I grew up as a regular little Ellie Beer, you know? And uh, you'll see my story of my father-in-law when I was a young boy, just married, and I asked my father-in-law about an ambulance. And I didn't ask him for money. I just told him that we need an ambulance without telling him, could you donate an ambulance? And you learn over time that people give people. It's not really organization. So more than more than techniques, it's it's about your passion for the for the project, whatever it is that you're fundraising for. Yes, but I could annoy people too. You'll see how many people I annoyed in this (laughs) book. My good friend Bob Book, I love him very much. He's uh, he's one of a kind, and I also annoyed him and Leonardo and many others. And I thought somehow you don't always know where to stop. You just keep pushing, and the more someone gives you, the more you push them. And yeah, and I think that's the right thing to do. I do the same thing to volunteers. Volunteer that goes out 30 calls a month. I say, could you push for 40 calls a month? You know what? If people know you need them, they will do it. Mm-hmm. Now, the book just talks about this, and, and it was very well publicized at the time. During COVID, you had your own battle, and you were welcomed back in, in grand fashion. Talk about that. That's a, you know, a, a very, very prominent episode in your life, I would call it. Well, this, well, this happened exactly three years ago. I was uh, traveling. I, I, I travel 200 days a year. Um, my kids don't see me. My kids actually call me Avinu Shabbat <laughs> <laughs> Um And I was traveling to APAC March 3rd big APAC convention in Washington, and 17,000 Jews were hugging me. I was hugging them. We weren't, we weren't shaking hands. We were going like this. Right, that was know? March 2020. Yeah, March right at 2020. The, right at the start of COVID. No one really knew what COVID was then. Right. And uh, when I got to uh, Washington, I was, everything was more or less normal. And then I had to fly to London for a weekend to speak over in a shul in London, and they shut down Israel for, I mean, didn't shut it down yet, but it was saying quarantine for anyone who's coming from APAC. And I said, how could I stay two weeks in my house? I will go crazy. So I decided to fly to Washington, to, to Miami, to good friend's bar mitzvah, Jay Shantin's grandson's bar mitzvah. And I said, okay, I'll go there instead. And when I got to Miami, I went to shul, Spent shul by Rabbi Lipsker in Bell Harbor. It was wonderful, great Seuda. 
And then somehow I felt dizzy. I didn't feel well. I ended up a few days into isolating myself. I couldn't breathe. I was looking for oxygen everywhere. And I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I was looking, I was going to the porch trying to breathe and I couldn't absorb the oxygen. And uh, I was the first person in ICU. Actually, Rabbi Lipsker and myself were both in the ICU mm -hmm. in, in, in Miami. And uh, a few days later, I had to say goodbye to my children. They told me that they have to intubate me, mm. put me in a coma. And uh, they said, I asked the doctor, what's my chances of survival? And he says, probably 5%. And uh, I called my kids. My kids were crying. I asked all my children, just be good Jews. Be good people. Do chesed. If you want me to be saved, the only thing you could do is do chesed. And if I'm not, if I don't survive, I said, uh, continue doing chesed like your grandfather, like your parents, my wife Kitty. Huge balat chesed. And I'm, I'm very privileged that I have kids who love helping people. And, uh, you know, no one of my kids are going to be Rav Chaim Kanievsky, but they're going to be Bali Chesed. And I, that's what I was worried about. My kids should do good. And I said, that's what you should focus on. And I went to sleep for a month. Wow. I wasn't sure I'll ever wake up. And then one day, I'm like, it took me two days or three days to realize I'm alive. Because even when I was waking up, I didn't know where I was. I was in I, delusions. I talk about it. It was very funny. I, I thought I was kidnapped by terrorists. And if they know I'm Jewish, they're going to kill me. And it was I. Right. It was another world that I woke into. When I woke up, I didn't know they shut down everywhere. They shut down shuls. They right. shut down hotels. You woke up to a different world. And here yeah. you are in America. Your family's in Israel. They're checking up on you every day. But, but, like, and you and no just, one could be with me. And I was all alone. All alone. And incredible people all over the world were, were fighting for me, everywhere. And people were davening for me and doing chesed for me. I told everyone, if you want me to be saved, do a good deed. That means a lot. That davening is important. You need to daven and you need to say tehillim, but doing an act of chesed for someone could go a long way. And uh, I'm 100% sure that the chesed saved my life. And I talk about the story when I woke up, and uh, I was so I was so disappointed. Like I was so I was broken heart. I I didn't want to continue being in a cell. I wanted to resign because I woke up 35, 40 pounds less. I wasn't myself. I couldn't talk. I I was so sick, and I just said enough is enough. I don't want to continue. And, uh, and I didn't want to even answer the phones. And then Eli Polak calls me from Israel, the CEO of Atzala. He says, Eli, you need to come back. We did chesed because of you. You asked us to do extra chesed. And now that we, all, we did all this stuff for you, you don't want to even come back. And Miriam Adelson is calling me, offering a plane. Everyone's calling and offering planes. And I said, I don't want any planes. I'm, uh, I'm not even coming back. So I said, what did you do for me? He says, you know what we did? We opened another department in Atzala besides heart attacks and strokes and COVID patients and everything else, we're also doing chesed now. People calling us to go shop for them. 
people calling to buy medicine for them. We, are, we have thousands of new volunteers who joined just for this, and we're dispatching them from United Cells Com- Command Center with our technology, like Uber. Right. We have very sophisticated technology. And that chesed operation is still, still, still working, still doing today. D- during the whole COVID time, yeah. we were helping. When he called me up, he said 60,000 people got help from us during the time you were in a coma. And we are continuing doing it, and it's all because of you. You asked us to do it. Wow. So I told him, give me one story of the 60,000, one story. And he says, a woman called five minutes before Pesach, and I was in a coma. And she says, I need help, save my life. They said, what's your emergency? She said, I don't have candles to light for Pesach. I live in Batyam, I'm 95 years old. Help me, send someone to get, give me candles. So they send out the call. And the first volunteer who responded to the call was an Arab volunteer by the name of Ibrahim Ayuti. And the story is a beautiful story. Yeah. And he got on his ambicycle, he bought in a little makolet, a little bodega. He bought a box of candles and a bouquet of flowers. He put it in the back next to the defibrillator. He drove over to her. He was there in five minutes, not 90 seconds. <laughs> but he brought over the candles. And she, she said to him, you saved my life. And he said, I want to spend two and a half He spent two and a half hours with her. He wanted to spend the Seder night. He sang for the first time in his life. He's Muslim. Right. He sang... Manishtana, he said, and after she asked him, after the Seder, she asked him, he asked her, why did you say I saved your life? I just brought you candles. And she said, even when I was a little kid in Europe, I never missed a week lighting candles. During the war, I lit a piece of paper every week. I never missed a week lighting candles for Shabbos, for Yontov. And after the war, when I came to Israel, when I came to Palestine, I decided to light candles for every member of my family who perished. And I lived every week without never missing a week. This is the first time. I didn't go shopping for a month. I couldn't go shopping. And good people left food next to my door. But I realized I don't have enough candles to light. And I said, if I'm not lighting enough candles and I have to light a piece of paper to fill in for the candles missing, I will not survive this and I will die. And I said last time I didn't feel well, I called that cellar and you guys came right away. And now you came and saved my life. An Arab volunteer, and I started crying when I heard this story. Ibrahim was crying when he saw he helped a Holocaust survivor. Ibrahim. And I love this man. And I came to Israel after saying I'm coming back, flying to Israel. And when I landed, I saw thousands of volunteers waiting for me. Right. Pictures said, and videos went out. People were, people were so taken by the welcome that you got. Really a hero's welcome. But I was asking, where is Ibrahim? And they brought him over. Right. And, I, and I, I gave him a hug. It was, you know, no one's allowed to touch each other then. It was all isolated. You were right. not, I said, give me a hug. I gave him a hug. I said, you saved my life. Because he gave you the inspiration to carry on. Yeah. I said, Chesed, even an Arab guy was inspired by United Hatzalah to go help a Holocaust survivor and save her life by giving her candles. He told me that all the emergencies he responded to Hatzalah ever in his life, this was the most meaningful Hatzalah emergency that he went to. Hmm. How long was it till you really felt like you were back to yourself? 
came back to Israel, you were still suffering from the after effects of COVID. You had lost a lot of weight. When was it that you said, you know what, I'm back, Baruch Hashem, really miraculously? Well, look, my wife told me I can't travel for two years. Uh-huh. I told her, Giti, give me two months, I'm on the plane back to travel. <laughs> she was laughing, like you are. Two months later, I was on the plane flying. People didn't want to, People were scared to meet me. No, I'm a COVID. I said, I'm the most secured guy you can meet. No one better than me to meet now. I'm done with it. I don't have, right, I have COVID over. already. And I got people to meet me. It was amazing because people were not meeting anyone. Right. And it was unbelievable. Hashem put me through this for a reason and many reasons. It's all in the book. It's inspiring. Now, you decided to take your life story, which is fascinating in itself, and have Rabbi Seltzer, who always does a magnificent job, and he did an unbelievable job putting your story into this book. What was you and your wife, you decided to kind of open up, open up you know, your, your private life as well and put it out there for the public, and you had a reason for doing so. What was that? The reason is I want United to tell us sustainable. I want the continuation of this organization for many generations after. It's not my organization. I started it with a, a reason. I had a, a, a reason. But to have so many thousands of children who grow up like me, kids who have a dream, and so many dreams are dismissed right. because someone said something to them. No, it's stupid. Don't do it. It's this and that. Gedalia met me. Rabbi Gedalia... Zlotowicz met me a year ago. I didn't want to do a book. I got a lot of offers to do books. We, were, we spent it a weekend together in a, in a Urfurf. And he said, Ellie, you should do a book. And I said, yeah, I heard that. And I don't know how to write. I can hardly read. You want me to write? <laughs> he said, I have a great writer for you. Rabbi Nachman Selsa. He wrote 50 books. He's going to make a beautiful story that will inspire the next generations of volunteers. When I said that, when I heard that, I said, you know what? So many thousands of people, especially young people, who read this book are going to get inspired to do something good in their life. Whatever it is, they'll do another idea, another organization, a business. When you have a dream to do something, don't let other people stop you. If it's a good thing, of course. And you learn that you, if you really believe in something, it could happen. I do believe that there are going to be people who are going to read this book. Young and old, everyone in between. There are going to be people who are going to read it and be inspired to chase their dreams. I don't think it's an exaggeration because they they're going to see that you did it. You, you, you did what people told you is impossible. You did what people told you you shouldn't do or you're stepping on other people's toes, and all the other reasons. <clears throat> and ultimately, you followed through. And thousands of lives later, you're here to tell the tale. That's in addition to all the other fascinating components of your life. Your, your, your challenge with health a few years ago, your fundraising stories and tips and insights, and your, your ability to connect with people. You have that ability to connect with people. You do. People see that you mean it. It's coming from your heart. And that comes through in this book. They see how genuine you are. You don't mind being vulnerable. You don't mind being honest. Because, you, you know, you're just... People meet you. Ellie Beer is Ellie Beer. 
There's no facade when people meet you. I know from when, when I, I was privileged to meet you and I saw that right away. And I think that's what people are going to see in this book. And I hope people go out and buy it just to, because it's going to infuse them with that belief that they can do what they put their mind and heart to do. And on that note, any final message? Well, last night I went for dinner and I met the Erber family in a restaurant here in New York. No, uh, I do. I'm eating there, and a little boy from the Erber family, he's maybe eight years old, he told me that he saved his sister's life because of me. Yeah. And they came to visit the United Atella Center a few years ago. They donated an ambucycle. And they were there, and I taught the little boy when he was maybe four. I taught him CPR, not CPR, Heimlich, Heimlich. how to save someone from choking. And he was a kid, very smart kid. And I have a doll that I teach it in. And he said, two years ago, his sister choked from food she was eating. And he saw her choke, and no one knew what to do. They called for Atzala right away. They called Atzala. He ran over. He was six years old. And he said, I did the Heimlich maneuver. Wow. And I did it a few times like you taught me. And I saved her life. And he told us last night. Really? Wow. That kid was inspired by me by learning CPR. I hope this will inspire a lot of people, and I, I recommend you buy this book for yourself, but also buy it for all your friends. Sure. Give it away for Pesach, for a gift for Pesach. Sure. It's a, it's a message that's, that's universal. Whoever reads it is, is going to be very, very, besides that, it's entertaining. It's pure entertainment. But this, it's, it's funny, too. We have a lot of funny it's stories. It's funny. You're funny. Your chutzpah is funny. The way you deal with people and the way... Reb Nachman portrays it in such a very human way. So it's, it's, it's really a great read, and we hope people read it. And Reb Eli, thank you for all you've done for Klal Yisrael. You've united people. You've, you've portrayed us in such a, a positive light. You've brought out the beauty of Klal Yisrael in a very unique way. You've been there for so many people. So I just offer my humble bracha. Thank you should you. continue. You should have the health and the strength together with your wife, your whole family, to continue being there for other people, continue inspiring, innovating, until Mashiach comes. You should continue your wonderful I want work. to continue after Mashiach After comes. Mashiach also. <laughs> should never stop. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. Thank you.